Good evening, everybody. First, uh, I, I don't. Uh, apparently, I can't stream to Twitch tonight. Something's like Twitch is down or something. Can't even get access to the site. So, no idea what's going on there. But hey, we'll have to hand. We'll have to deal with only broadcasting in two places tonight instead of three, I suppose. Um, uh, anyway, cool. Great to see you guys this evening. Glad to be back doing the Trees of Isengard again, session six now tonight. We're working our way through. Um, and uh, tonight's class is going to be a little bit different. We looked at a couple sort of major developments in Tolkien's thinking last week, right? We were looking at the sort of the development of the, the Gondor story, especially not really the Gondor story so much. Uh, and that's part of it, of course, but, but really the story of the Dúnedain in Middle-earth and the background for Aragorn. You know, how do you get from Elendil and the, the, the War of the Last Alliance, which was already existed in some form, all the way back in uh, in the Lost Road before he began the as part of the, the Numenor story, um, before he began to write the Lord of the Rings, how do you get from there from Elendil uh, and his fall uh, down to Aragorn, and what is their relationship with Andor? So we looked at that, and of course we looked at the emergence of Saruman uh, and Saruman's uh, convincing of Gandalf or attempt to convince Gandalf, and then of course to capture him. Uh, so. Um, those were the two. So, so, I mean, those, and those are two pretty big ideas, right? And it was, it's so, it's so interesting as always to be reminded of how much we can take for granted, right? I mean, I said this last week, but you know, as soon as Aragorn is named as the heir of Elendil, right? In the you know, sort of those early drafts that we saw in the beginning of the Treason of Isengard. I don't know about you, but of course, I always like you know, I'm like oh, cool, so, you know. Granted, right now we know like the background of Aragorn is now he's finally the heir of Elendil. But of course, what does that mean to be the heir of Elendil? It's easy to make assumptions that aren't clearly there. So watching these ideas developing in Tolkien's mind, many of them slower than we might have expected. Okay, so um, anyway, so that's that's that was that was really cool. Tonight we're going to do something a little bit different, uh, and tonight that is. The different thing we're going to be doing is sort of much more odds and ends, essentially. Um, the two chapters that we're covering today, there, you know, I mentioned there were a, a few slides left over from the Council of Elrond, though not that many, um, and a few slides that we're doing from these last two chapters. But the idea of these two chapters, uh, you know, this is this is we're going through the last of the stuff that Tolkien has ever drafted. So my somewhat melodramatic title for tonight's class, "To the Edge of the Known World," uh, we're going to come up to the place to the to the to the high water mark uh, of the Lord of the Rings as far as he's ever gotten in the narrative, and we begin to see some things from the future, right, that we can recognize that are beginning to come peeking through. Uh, we will see tonight the very first reference to Lothlorien as that idea has fi- has begun to kind of percolate in some form or other. Um, we can see that, that coming up, though it's not at all clear what it means. But anyway, uh, we'll see that. So s- next week, we are going to move past, right? We're going to, you know, the, the, the incoming wave will go uh, a little bit further up the beach than we've been before. Uh, and we're going to uh, uh, go through to, of course, the Bridge of Khazad-dûm, which, is, uh, which was not something that he'd ever written before. Remember, his, la- his latest draft had ended at the Tomb of Balin in Moria, and that's as far as we're going to get uh, 
as far as we're going to get tonight. So, so yes, uh, uh, Sharon, it's an oddments class. Uh, uh, you know, I don't, I don't have, you know, maybe we'll see something as the uh, class goes on. Uh, I don't have any big overarching themes. There's none of those like really big ideas, prominent, uh, central, important parts of the story uh, that emerge, but some really interesting bits and pieces that I think that we can see kind of creeping through uh, when we look at some of the tweaks that he's doing and some of the things that are kind of uh, 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 remaining there in um, uh, in the the text as he's revising it, so all right. Uh, so I just want to say for a second hi to everybody who's watching on Facebook. I can see your comments there, so go ahead and feel free to contribute to the class and answer questions that I have and make observations uh, as we go. And I'll try to get your comments uh, off of my screen there. All right, so let's uh, let's dig in. Let's get moving here. Okay, we may remember that um, uh, Tolkien had been he, he he'd had kind of a chronic Hobbit surplus problem, or at least he felt that he did. One of the uh, most amusing sort of threads of our discussion of the Return of the Shadow was uh, Tolkien's. Largely vain attempts to cut down on the number of hobbits uh, who kept popping up again, especially, of course, the notorious uh, and uh, unquenchable Odo, uh, who uh, Odo took Odo Bulger, uh, who um, his last name changed, but uh, anyway, who kept whom Tolkien kept uh, 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 vowing to cut and then not being able to go through with it. Um, we can see this sort of uh, uh, impulse still continuing here. So this is now back still in the uh, in the Council of Elrond, right? So this is the latest draft of the Council of Elrond, and we're we're trying to determine the composition of the of the party, right, of the fellowship. Marianne suggests that the hobbits were regenerating. Uh, it's possible. I mean, Odo totally could have been, uh, totally could have been a time lord, right? Uh, for as many different lives and incarnations as he had uh, over the course of the early drafts of the story. That seems totally plausible. Uh, anyway, okay. Um, what about Mariotic and Faramond changed to Peregrine? Remember, this is right before. Still, he's still using Faramond before he's, he finally settles on 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 Peregrine for Pippin's name. Um, said Frodo, suddenly realizing that his friends were not included. Mary has come far with me, and it will grieve him to be left behind now. Faramond changed to Peregrine would go with you out of love for you if he were bidden," said Gandalf. "But his heart is not in such perilous adventures, much though he loves you. Merry will be grieved, it is true, but Elrond's decision is wise. He is merry in name and merry in heart. But this quest is not for him, not for any hobbit, unless fate and duty chooses him. But do not be distressed. I think there may be other work for him to do, and that he will not be left long idle." Okay, so we see that the the decision to to cut out the to cut down on the hobbits right uh, is still sort of there. Um, his so his his impulse here, and again, this is not a first impulse, right? This is a a late impulse. This is what the third version of the Council of Elrond that he's done at this point now. So. Uh, though only the second time, the first time he didn't get as far as making up the fellowship, right? Remember uh, the very first version of the Council of Elrond stuff ended with, um, we didn't even get to the council, right? I guess, so I guess it doesn't really count. Um, it was, it, it ended with Frodo's, um, the first trip to Rivendell ended with Frodo's conversation uh, with Glowen. Um, 
so we only had, I guess, one full version of the council. This is really the second. Anyway, um, but uh, the point is, the idea of having the fellowship be a party of nine, four of which are hobbits. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't want to go there. And I think it's really interesting. There are several uh, really interesting things about this uh, to me. Um, uh, yeah, there's... Uh, okay, I, I, you guys have good observations here. Um, uh, <laughs> okay, sorry, I have to acknowledge first not to be outdone by the Time Lord comments. Both Jordan Sunderland and Brandon Minnick at the same time are making uh, 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 changeling jokes about Odo uh, that uh, he was, as a changeling, changing form, of course, uh, one-upping the Doctor Who reference with the Deep Space Nine reference. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, uh, Stephen points out very rightly that fate and duty is choosing Sam. And it is cool, Stephen, right? That that's just kind of acknowledged, right? Um, and in a sense, of course, you've got to think that, that Gandalf, who's talking, um, you know, says that, nor for any hobbit unless fate and duty chooses him. Uh, he's got to be thinking of Frodo here. I mean, he's talking to Frodo, right? And so he's like, you know, it's not for... Because uh, and, and, he's talking to Frodo, so he's like, I'm talking about you, right? It's, it's not for any hobbit, right? Uh, unless fate and duty chooses him, by which I mean you, right? But of course, Stephen, exactly as you point out, that does apply to Sam as well. And implicitly, Gandalf would seem to be including uh, Sam in that, uh, you know, uh, telling Frodo that fate and duty... Now, is it, cause conceivably, it's like fate and duty respectively, right? Fate has chosen Frodo, duty has chosen Sam. Um, you know, and it may be that that's what uh, Tolkien meant by that particular construction from Gandalf there, um, that those are the two reasons, respectively, that, but both fit for both of them, I think, uh, quite possibly. But uh, um, but we're going to send Merry and Pippin back. So first, before we talk about the goal for Merry and Pippin, or the, plan, the apparent plan for Merry and Pippin, um, let's look at the status of Merry and Pippin. Right. First of all, notice the dis- the distinction that Frodo draws. Frodo, not Gandalf. Frodo draws between Merry and Pippin. Right now, this is something that we've kind of seen all along. Right uh, from the earlier drafts, Merry, uh, ever since he was Marmaduke, right, has been Frodo's best friend. Right. Um, it's you know so there was even back when it was just Merry and uh, Merry and Frodo. Right when Frodo when was still bingo, right? Uh, anyway, never mind. Let's not give it, Let's not go back there. Um, but anyway, he's always been the 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 best friend of Frodo, um, and that's 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 always been a big deal, right? And he's he's been distinguished in this kind of way before. You know, Pippin slash Faramon slash Odo is his friend, um, but uh, but not not as close a friend, not as much of a peer as Mary, right? Pippin's always been kind of a junior partner um, in that, not junior in the sense of like he and Mary are friends and he, Mary is senior to him and he's junior to Mary. I mean, in their relationship with Frodo, he's also uh, Frodo's friend, um, but he's not on kind of on par with Frodo. Um, there, uh, he's more of a, well, it's not exactly fair to call Pippin, I was about to say something like he's closer to Frodo's protege than his than his than his you know pal 
right? Um, but that's not exactly right either. It's not like he's... Um, it's not like Pippin is to Frodo what Frodo is to Bilbo or something like that. Um, but he's definitely um, he's definitely sort of a junior uh, a junior partner. Um, Nancy says, "Is he an, the annoying younger brother slash cousin who tags along?" Well, not not exactly. I mean, his the relationship that we see between Pippin and Frodo uh, from the from you know, throughout their trip across the Shire, right? Shows that he's not just, it's not just like Frodo tolerates him, right? Um, uh, And the distinction between Pippin's commitment to the journey and, say, Hamilcar Bolger's commitment to the journey, right, is, is, that difference is pretty clear, right? So again, it's not like he's just a hanger-on, but, um, but anyway, there is, there is, there is definitely uh, a significant distinction uh, between those two. And, and again, Mary has come far with me, and it will grieve him to be left behind now. He says nothing about Pippin's reaction, right? In fact, and from that I take not that, like, Frodo is forgetting about Pippin or doesn't care about Pippin at all. The implication I get there is that he doesn't believe that Pippin is going to be grieved to be left behind, right? Um Remember, Pippin was the one who was all enthusiastic about going to Rivendell, right? Um, and believing that that was the end of their journey. Um, it's not a given that they're both going to go on to the absolute end of the road. And I read this as Frodo essentially accepting that um, uh, that Pippin is probably not even necessarily all that interested in coming along on the next stage uh, of the quest, going going off towards Mordor, at least to Minas Tirith. Um, and, Gan- and Gandalf seems to acknowledge this, you know, it's Gandalf who brings up Pippin, right? Peregrine would go with you out of love for you if he were bidden, said Gandalf. He's not volunteering, right? If you asked him, he'd agree. Out of love for you, right? So Gandalf does emphasize, does emphasize, acknowledge, Peregrine is committed, right? Peregrine does care. Um, but he'd have to be asked, right? Pippin's not beaten down the door to come in this version. Um, and Gandalf adds, his heart is not in such perilous adventures, much though he loves you. Remember back to the Hobbit walking party thing, right? All those things where we were seeing Pippin um, you know, earlier on in this, in the third and the fourth draft, uh, seeming to sort of not take things quite as seriously, right? Uh, to not quite be on the same page as Frodo, even in the, even in their, the song of the conspirators, right? Sh- suggesting that they're not really getting it. Um, a lot of that was sort of Pippin. Now, I don't think Arthur, and there was somebody else earlier on who was suggesting the same thing. I don't think that when Gandalf says, you know, Peregrine would go out of love for you if he were bidden, I don't think that's to make a distinction the other way, like Pippin loves him more than Mary does, right? Because um, remember, Frodo's already acknowledged this, right? Frodo's already acknowledged that it's going to grieve Mary to be left behind. Um, Frodo has already made a stronger statement about Mary's commitment to him then Gandalf is going to go on and make. So Gandalf adds on a statement about Pippin's commitment, which is still, it seems they both agree, comparatively lesser than Mary's, right? Um, Pippin loves Frodo enough that he would go if he were asked. Mary 
loves him so much that he's going to be grieved to be left behind, right? He doesn't need to be asked. He's going to have to be, you know, kept out. Um, so that's, I, I, so I, I don't think that there's any implication that Pippin has more love for him than Mary. They just both agree. Like, obviously Mary is, Mary is the one who is, who is closer, who is, who is more committed. Um, uh, yeah, Francis, there is there does seem to be a sense in which both of them are sort of treating Pippin like a younger sibling. Again, not, not quite protege, right? Not not like he's a younger generation exactly. Um but they're treating him as the he is the youngest, they're treating him as the youngest and he doesn't himself seem to be taking it uh quite so seriously. Um The other thing though. What's the plan? What's the plan? In this conception and of course, this is all shifting around, right? And he's not going to land on this very long. Mary and Pippin are going to come along. Um, as they did, remember, in the previous version of The Ring Goes South, Mary and Pippin were there. Remember, at the time, it was, it was uh, like Boromir, Gandalf, and a passel of hobbits, right? Because Trotter was still a hobbit at the time. So there are five hobbits on the journey. Um, and uh, uh, you know, anyways, it was uh, it was uh, even more Hobbit heavy uh, in the last version. So Merry and Pippin did use they they went the first time Tolkien did that drafting. So this is a change, uh, or at least this is Tolkien toying with a change. The to me the most tantalizing part of this passage is, don't be distressed. I think there may be other work for him to do, and that he will not be left long idle. What does that mean? He seems to have some plan. Tolkien, I mean, not Mary. Tolkien seems to have some plan. Something that he has for Mary and Pippin to do. Back in the Shire, right? Um, does it point to the, to the uh, 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 scouring? No. Well, maybe, but uh, not the scouring as it later comes to be, right? Um, it's possible that something like the scouring of the Shire is already in Tolkien's mind, but certain, again, certainly not the scouring of the Shire as we will later come to see it, because it's going to start happening immediately, right? Um, he will not be left long idle. Merry and Pippin are going to go back to the Shire, and they're going to have immediate work to do, right? So what was that going to look like? Was it going to be like the Shire, invasions of men and problems with Lotho Pimple? Are we, were we going to get, like, uh, you know, a sort of you know, Game of Thrones political intrigues, you know, uh, uh, plot line with Mary and Lotho Pimple, right? Uh, 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 warring for the hearts and minds of the Shire and, and the political control uh, of the, uh, the, 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 the chiefdom and the loyalty of the sheriffs. I have no idea what the plan was uh, exactly. Um, yeah, Kate, it does kind of sound like he's going to write an on-the-home-front story. It really does. Like, the, there's going to be a plot thread which has to do with what's going on back in the Shire, not just something we come back to later on, right? But something that's going to be happening. It's going to be somehow relevant. Though keep in mind also, Tolkien had no idea how long this story was going to be, right? Remember, he still thinks when he's in Rivendell, when he gets the story to Rivendell, that he's halfway done, right? Um that the you know the the trip to rivendell is the first leg and the trip from Riv- from rivendell on to mordor uh is the last part of the story um and possibly not even as long as the first half so uh so 
you know, he's not um, he's not necessarily the same. Uh, 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 when we say, oh, it's but it's it, it's the the scouring isn't delayed by as much. Remember, he didn't think there would be all that much delay. So it might just be something like the scouring, which uh, the timing of which would be would be. Uh, would be different. Exactly, Brandon. Lotho of House Pimple. Though I hate to think of what the uh uh the 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 heraldic uh seal of House Pimple uh would look like. That just can't be that just can't be good. Um uh <laughs> so anyway um uh it would um it would be inter- it would be interesting to see. You know, I really do kind of wonder what would have happened with Mary and Pippin, because it seems like the answer is not nothing. It's not just them dropping out of the story. Um, and I don't know what their role would have been. As I say, I find that really tantalizing. Um, but, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's keep going. <laughs> Lee Smith says the heraldic seal of house pimple could be a sink of unwashed dishes. <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. Uh possibly if if like they're remembering old grievances, right? That that of course uh, that of course could be. Uh uh Oh yes, uh Jane is suggesting uh uh an umbrella should be part of that heraldic crest. Yeah. Yeah. Um that that makes that makes really good sense. Uh maybe yeah, James, perhaps an umbrella and a silver spoon crossed, right? That could work. Um yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Okay. Um so let's uh let's look at next tidbit. This is really cool. Okay. In Gandalf's account to the um in Gandalf's account to the uh uh to the to the council about where he went. They took me, said Gandalf, and placed me on the pinnacle of Orthanc, in the place where Saruman of old was wont to watch the stars. There is no descent but by a narrow stair, and the vale that once w- that was once fair was filled with wolves and orcs, for Saruman was there mustering a great force for the service of his new master. I had no chance of escape, and my days were bitter, for I had but little room in which to walk to and fro, and brood on the coming of the riders to the north." But there was always a hope that Frodo had set forth as I had bidden, and would reach Rivendell ere the inescapable pursuit began. I love that, ere the inescapable pursuit began. But both my fear and my hope were cheated, for I made the mistake that others have made. I did not yet understand that in the Shire the power of Sauron would halt and fumble, and the hunt be at a loss. And my hope was founded on an innkeeper, one of the best in the world, but not to be made a tool in high matters." Oh, let that be a lesson to you, Gandalf. Don't make innkeepers your tools. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, Arthur, he's not calling Barlamin a tool. Uh, it's just not the same connotations there. Um, okay. What do you notice here? Right? First of all, we notice in passing, as I talked about last time, there is not yet any hint that Saruman is openly planning defiance against Sauron. His plan, at least as he said it to Gandalf, and seems to be borne out by everything else we've seen, is just that he harbors sort of a secret desire to um, uh, to to figure that out, right? To, to kind of eventually undermine Sauron and uh, keep an eye for his own chances down the road. Um, so he's not, he's not in rebellion, 
against Sauron. He's not uh, uh, looking to fight against him at all. Uh, he's in uh, seems to be in well, I was gonna say an honest service, perhaps dishonest service, but service nevertheless uh, uh, to uh, to 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 Sauron. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, several of you are making moth jokes. Yes, no, still no sign of a moth. The uh, the obvious solution has still not occurred to Tolkien. The part here, of course, that I was most interested... Well, two things here. Um, first, comment on the part that's in this passage. Second, uh, a part that came earlier on, but I want to mention, since we're bringing it up here in this, in this context, um, what he says about the riders and the Shire, right? Um, I've heard people before say that the... Like, Basically, uh, one objection I've heard to the Lord of the Rings, one objection that I've heard to the um, uh, sort of a what I've heard tell as a as a plot inconsistency in the Lord of the Rings is that the Ringwraiths, who are like so super mega powerful, by the time we get to the Return of the King, when they're in the Shire, they they they're like wusses, right? You know, like they're getting told off by Gaffer Gamgee. Um, why is it that like the 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 Ringwraiths who were able to, like, cow the spirits of the entire garrison in the city of Minas Tirith during the siege, uh, were not able to successfully intimidate uh, one hard-of-hearing hobbit pensioner on his own doorstep uh, on Bagshot Row. And... uh, and so, again, many have sort of suggested this is just kind of an inconsistency, right? That Tolkien had no idea uh, what he was doing. You know, I mean, he had no idea of what the ring race were. And then sort of as the story went along, he was kind of beefing them up, right? And then it did not successfully go back and make it consistent. Now, of course, there's an element of truth in that observation or in that accusation, right? In that Tolkien certainly didn't have any clear idea of what the Black Riders were when he uh, when he first mentioned them, uh, as we've seen ourselves before, especially through The Return of the Shadow. But what we can see here in this passage is early evidence that long before we get to the Siege of Minas Tirith, right? Long before... Um, the uh, and Mary and I agree with your phrasing there. It is um, it is more a question of Tolkien discovering how powerful the Ringwraiths really are than just changing his mind later on. That's certainly how he would talk about it. But anyway, long before we get to the Siege of Minas Tirith, long before we get the mega Ringwraiths, right of that later on, we see two things already here while he's still drafting and redrafting this that very same early material that people are complaining about not being consistent with the later stuff that isn't yet written right um first the the fact the writers are a big deal you can see that he already thinks of the writers as being a big deal uh the 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 coming of the writers to the north uh, the inescapable pursuit, even as we saw before the original idea of Gandalf's captivity where he was holed up. Um, you know, he was just besieged in a tower. They couldn't come in and, and get him out, um, but he couldn't go out uh, past them either. Um, th- they were a big deal. And of course, the Witch King, as we've seen, or excuse me, Wizard King, uh, is a really, is a particularly big deal. Gandalf has said in, in, in earlier comments that the Wizard King is more powerful than he is. Um, and he couldn't stand up to him or oppose the Black Riders when he, the Wizard King, is with them. Um, so anyway, so he's already seen, I mean, this, we, we see the Black Riders being huge in stature, and he's already answering the question here, 
right? He's already answering the question. If the Black Riders are so unstoppable that even Gandalf fears to, to, to oppose them, at least when they're with the Wizard King, um, and, you know, they, they, they have such power over the hearts uh, and spirits of men, why, you know, why is it that Gaffer Gamgee is able to, to give him sauce and slam the door in his face, Right. And he's already answering that question. I did not yet understand that in the Shire, the power of Sauron would halt and fumble and the hunt be at a loss. The power of Sauron would halt and fumble. Um, Gandalf does not attribute the escape of Frodo and the lack of success of the riders to providence, right? Providential, apparently lucky, um, uh, uh, chances, right? Uh, like Gildor coming along and saving them, right? Like them narrowly missing the Black Rider at Farmer Maggot's house, right? Um, Gandalf does not say he could, right? Say something like, uh, you know, I didn't dare to hope that like a series of unlikely events would intervene to preserve Frodo from being caught by the Black Riders, right? That's not what he says. That's not where he goes with it. Instead, he says... Basically, the riders turn out to be less capable uh, of... Uh, the, 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 the pursuit is not inescapable. Turns out, in the Shire, the, their pursuit isn't inescapable, right? Um, and there does seem to be a... Uh, uh, and he doesn't spell that out, right? He doesn't spell out what exactly it is. Um, you know, James asked, does the Shire itself have some power to withstand... Uh, Sauron, that is how I read this. It's not. It's not clear. It's not. It's not fleshed out. Um, but I do read that as like in the Shire, the power of the there is some dampening force on the power of the of the riders in the Shire. Um, so, uh, yes, Arthur, I agree that the line that he's going to add to the Council of Elrond, it isn't there yet, right? But the, the line that's going to get added later, there's power in the Shire, there's power of another sword in the Shire, right? When Gandalf is talking about that, talking about Tom Bombadil and things like that. Yeah, I, I, I do very much read Gandalf as saying that, pointing to that same idea, um, that it's not, it's not just coincidence, it's not just good luck, uh, it's not just mismanagement on the part of the Black Riders. There is something at work there, and not just divine intervention, you know, not just like the Valar taking a hand or something like that. There is something about the Shire that uh, what uh, makes them halt and fumble, right? Makes the power of Sauron halt and fumble. They seem to be lesser there. And, you know, and we don't, um, he doesn't explain it, right? We don't get any more, but that's um, that's been, I think, uh, uh, interesting to see. Tolkien is well aware of this uh, already. He already knows that the Black Riders are a bigger deal than they have appeared to be at first, um, and he's already made an explanation for this. Um, Instead of going back and changing it, as he easily could, right? As he's done before, he still has more revisions to do of the earlier stuff. He's going to have more opportunities if he wants to go back and make some alterations there, but he chooses not to, and this is why. Um, 
so that's really uh that's really that's really good. I don't know what it is uh exactly um there'll be another passage we'll look at later which might maybe have some kind of give provide some kind of hint of this but I don't know for sure. Anyway, we'll see. I will, I'll mention this again when we come back to it later on. The second point that I wanted to mention, the one that's not explicitly referred to in this passage. Um, and I have to admit, this is on my very short list of things in the drafts that Tolkien takes out in the published version that I wish he hadn't taken out. Uh, Things that I wish hadn't been cut. um, Or changed. And this is in the conversation between Radagast and Gandalf. So, Radagast talks to Gandalf. We saw that that encounter. He wrote that encounter for the first time. You know, we looked at that in uh, last week's class. And um, Radagast says... You should hurry. Like, Saruman wants to talk to you, right? So, like, the, and and this makes sense, right? That the ring wraiths are coming. Uh, surely, you will want to consult with the world's leading ring of power slash ring wraith expert, right? Uh, in order to get some 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 sound advice. Um, but keep in mind the geography, right? Um, in the published Fellowship of the Ring, Radagast says you'd better hurry because even now you'll barely reach Saruman before they might get there. To the Shire, and I, often when I'm talking to people about Tolkien, and they wanna they wanna complain about Tolkien, I talk to people who wanna complain about Tolkien or dislike Tolkien, um, and uh, when people wanna point out plot holes in the Lord of the Rings, um, they'll make a lot of points. The most tiresome of which is the, uh, the stupid eagle thing about why they didn't use the eagles to fly the ring to Mordor, which makes not very much sense on almost any level, actually, if you think about it for five minutes. But, um, but there are. This is, in my opinion, the biggest plot hole in the published Fellowship of the Ring. Um, why would Gandalf... Do- if Saruman is right there, I totally get it, right? But what, knowing that the Ringwraiths are going to be... Like, it's possible that the Ringwraiths will get to the Shire before Gandalf even gets to Orthanc. Why would he go? Why would he go? Leaving Frodo, even if Frodo gets the letter and sets off, still? Isn't that cutting it a bit close? Besides which, what would be the benefit of going down to ask... Because even if Saruman is waiting at the door with, like, some anti-ringwraith weapon in a box, right, with a bow on top, handing it to Gandalf so that Gandalf can take it, turn around the same hour, and and run back up to the north, he wouldn't get there in time to do anything, right? What's the point of... What possible good could consulting with Saruman do uh, if you know, given the timing of that and in the draft as you may remember Radagast says for you know even now you won't get there to Saruman before they cross the seven streams the ringwraiths right that is to say rumors they've left Mordor right and they're crossing the land of Ond right but Gandalf is going to get to Orthanc before they even get into Rohan Right. The, what, what he's saying is they may they may be almost to Rohan by the time you get there. So if you get down there, talk to Saruman, turn around and go back, you'll barely be ahead of them. 
that's a journey I could see Gandalf getting behind and taking the risk, saying, okay, I'm going to cover my, my, my bases, right, by sending a message back to Frodo to say, leave right away, and I'm going to leave a message, uh, you know, try to re- leave a message for, 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 for Aragorn, right, so that he can be around to help, and then I'm going to go down to Saruman, because I think I can, I can get down there fast enough and turn around and get back up to the north and still beat them up to the Shire, right? That makes, I can see Gandalf taking that gamble. I can't, but he, but that gets changed uh, in the published text, and I still don't fully understand the rationale. I'd be interested to see. I don't remember how that happens uh, in the in the. It's been a while since I've uh, studied the history of the Lord of the Rings here, so I'll be interested to see when we get there how that emerges uh, and what happens there because I don't remember reading that part. Uh, I, I don't re- remember what happens in that bit, and I'm saving myself. I'm not looking ahead. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna do this together with you guys. So, uh, so we'll see together how that's resolved when we get there. Um, but I thought that that was really interesting, and of course, it's the first reference to the seven rivers of Gondor, uh, and uh, we'll come back to a reference to those again uh, later on uh, down there. Um, okay, yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, oh, and Yana says, why doesn't he send uh, uh, Trotter to Bag End to start the escort there? Because, well, in the published text, of course, Trotter wasn't there, right? He wasn't there when the message came to Gandalf. And so, you know, it was only later on that Aragorn arrived, um, and Butterbird didn't trust Aragorn enough to, like, tell him about the letter, or, you know, he'd forgotten about the letter, right? Uh um, so, so he didn't get, so Strider never got the message from Gandalf. He just didn't know where he was, right, or what was going on. Um, and I think that's still true here. Um, Yana, or Nancy says, why doesn't he send Radagast, for that matter? Um, well, fortunately, he sends Radagast to do... That, that, I, that I'm totally willing to accept, because Radagast doesn't, doesn't even know where the Shire is, right? Um, uh, so... Uh, uh, so yeah, it, it, I I don't know. It, it's it, it makes sense to me what he does with Radagast because just as Saruman is the is the 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 expert right is the expert on the enemy and the rings of power and the ring wraiths right. So if you need a consult on that, you go with them. Radagast has his area of expertise as well, right? And that's birds and beasts. And so Gandalf says, hey, go round up the birds and beasts, right? And and so F- Radagast being much more useful in gaining information, right? Gaining intelligence by uh, uh, the, 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 you know, surveillance of birds and beasts, right? And obviously with the eagles, that works out. Um, uh, even better than Gandalf could have could have predicted. So, delegating Radagast to work within his particular wizardly specialty uh, or subspecialty to me makes all kinds of sense. Um, but uh, anyway, so I wanted to mention that bit about the geography um, and the way in which this draft seems to me in that one moment better actually than the published version. Um, all right, let's keep going. All right some Tom Bombadil talk here. Um, these are two versions of the... Remember, uh, uh, Tolkien was kind of going back and forth on how to bring Tom, uh, how to bring Tom into the Council of Elrond, and in particular, how to... Um, uh, how to... Uh, uh, 
deal with or describe Gandalf and Tom's relationship. How much contact does Gandalf have with Tom Bombadil? Uh, first impulse here in this version. Uh, they ask about Tom Bombadil. Yes, and I went to him at once, naturally, as soon as I found that the hobbits had gone into the old forest. I dare say he would have kept them longer in his house if he had known that I was so near. But I am not sure. Not sure that he did not know, and not sure that he would have behaved differently in any case. He is a very strange creature, and follows his own counsels, and they are not easy to fathom. Major understatement when it comes to Tom Bombadil, uh, that his counsels are not easy to fathom. But then, uh, very quickly afterwards, he changes this to, I know of him, though we seldom meet. I am a rolling stone, and he is a gatherer of moss. Both have a work to do, but they do not help one another, one another often. I think it might have been wiser to have sought his aid, but I do not think I should have gained much. He is a strange creature, and follows his own counsels, and they are not easy to fathom. Um, so, the first is the, and this, you know, sort of Christopher's primary emphasis on these passages is the mapping of Gandalf's movements, right? You know, this is Tolkien deciding whether or not uh, uh, Gandalf is going to stop by and visit Tom Bombadil and ask for Tom Bombadil's help. Uh, on the way between the Shire and Bree. So, um, so on the one hand, we, we certainly, yes, we see, uh, we see him changing his mind about that. Um, but, uh, Yana says, uh, that, uh, he likes this version of the Rolling Stone comment better, that it seems, it seems less dismissive. Of course, we'll see, and this is a, this is classic Tolkien, right? Um, do you remember when Gandalf is going to say that, right? The Rolling Stone and the Gatherer of Moss? But it's not going to be, uh, uh, you know, well, of course, the way that he'll say it is, he is a moss gatherer and I have been a stone doomed to rolling, right? Uh, but he's not going to say it at the Council of Elrond in the published text, right? In the published text, exactly, James. It's in Homeward Bound. Um, it's when they get back to Bree. It's when he's going to stop off and visit Tom. Right, uh, Gandalf is, and let the the hobbits go into the Shire on their own for the scouring. Um, that's when he makes the comment about moss gathering rocks and rolling uh, uh, and rolling stones. Right, um, and that's kind of classic Tolkien. He decides to cut this line out. Right in the end, he's not Gandalf isn't going to say either one of these things uh, in the published Council of Elrond. He's not going to go and visit him, and he's not. He, he Tolkien ends up cutting the rolling stone line out. But he cuts it up, but doesn't throw it away, right? He keeps it and puts it back in the story again much, much later uh, when uh, Gandalf is finally going to go visit him uh, at the end. Um, exactly. So, um, but one thing that is consistent throughout there, right, um, is the conception of Tom Bombadil as not feckless, not unreliable, not, uh, you know, but just inscrutable. Um, I love, get my, the thing that I love about that first passage is Gandalf's uncertainty. On the one hand, he says that naturally I went to him. Right? When, when he knew, because in, in this version of the story, he knew that Frodo went to the Old Forest. And in that case, naturally, he would go ask Tom Bombadil where he was, right? What changed, what what changed in the story was not whether or not Gandalf thought it would be a good idea to talk to Tom Bombadil, but whether or not Gandalf knew that Frodo had gone into the old forest at all, right? Uh, he doesn't find that out until later uh, in the new version. So anyway, 
Uh, it is natural that he would consult Tom, but I love Gandalf's uncertainty. Um, he first makes this confident statement. I dare say he would have kept them longer in his house if he had known that I was so near, right? Which sounds very comic. I'm sure that's because that's the sensible thing to do. Had he known that I was searching for Frodo and that Fro- poor Frodo was wandering off on his own, surely he would have just said, how don't you hang out at my house for another day or two? Gandalf would be along pretty soon, right? And th- but then he doubts himself, right? But I'm not sure. Uh, come to think of it, I'm, I'm not sure that he didn't know. He probably knew and he, or, and he sent him on anyway. Or even if, if he had known, he probably, maybe he would have sent him on, right? Maybe actually I'm not so sure what Tom Bombadil would have done. He probably wouldn't have kept them at his house, right? He has no idea. He's a very strange creature and follows his own counsels and they are not easy to fathom. It's not a criticism of Tom's counsels, right? Um, And there's even an implication there. I read that not as insult of Tom Bombadil, but even a kind of almost deference to Tom Bombadil, right? Like Gandalf admitting, if it were me, I would think it was a pretty lousy idea to let the hobbits go, right? And wander off through the Barrow Downs by themselves. Um, with the ring raids pursuing them. That seems to me like very poor planning. I would not have done that. And yet, he, again, he's not saying that. He's not saying, like, boy, little did I know that Tom Bombadil would act like a complete moron, right? That's not, in fact, what he does. What he says here, what he says is, his counsels aren't e- easy. It, Tom might have known something I didn't know, or he might have foreseen something I wouldn't foresee. There might be, there, it might have been good. Maybe had they waited for me, you know, in retrospect, from where they're sitting at the Council of Elrond, it, it, it all worked out, right? Gandalf can see now, in retrospect, that it all worked out and seems to be speculating, did Tom guess in advance that that was how it was supposed to be, right? Um, and that seems to me very possible. You know, I don't know. Um, uh, you know, I don't know. Gandalf doesn't know the reason for why Tom Bombadil does that, but he does seem to say, or at least be open to the idea that he does have a reason. Um, you know, Nancy asks, does Tom have foresight? We don't know. Gandalf seems to leave that possibility open. You know, that he has, um, um, that Tom's counsels, inscrutable though they may be, may also possibly be wise. Certainly it has worked out, right? So it has the, uh, it has the success uh, of, uh, of, you know, uh, granted through hindsight, right? Um, okay. Next bit, the history of the dwarves. Um, so this is a really interesting recasting of things. Um, you may remember that Khazad-dum appeared for the first time, as I recall, it appeared for the first time in the 1937 Quinta. There was a reference to the dwarvish um, city, right, of Khazad-dum. But it was one of the... It was, it was Nograd. I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, and again, it's now been so... I can barely remember what happened last week, and that's been now months and months ago. Um, but... Um, 
anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm pause for just a little second as a sidebar, responding to some of the Facebook comments. Um, if any of you on Facebook have any idea, well, I keep having audio issues. I do not know why the sound is modulating. I've seen, I see no way to fix it. No explanation of why it's happening. If anybody has any theories, I, I'm so interested in theories as to why the weird audio modulation uh, is happening. Um, it's nothing here. I don't know if it's something with my iPhone, which is where I'm broadcasting from, or uh, or the app or what. I have no clue, but it's weird. Anyway, okay. Um, uh, end sidebar. Um, okay, so um, back to, to Khazad Doom. So there were a couple things, right? One is uh, we had two threads before. Remember, in part, what's going on here in this passage, which I have not yet read, um, is the connecting of the dots. And we were talking last last two weeks, really, about Tolkien really beginning to merge and integrate more thoroughly the Silmarillion material with the Lord of the Rings stuff now that that firewall has come down. The history of the dwarves is one that really needs work for this reason, because we have two data points already, right? Data point number one, the Longbeards, right, are one of the families of dwarves based in Nogrod in the Silmarillion material, right? Um, So in the Silmarillion stuff, which is in the 1937 Quenta, we have the dwarves who are the Longbeards, who are the, it's the Longbeards that, like Durin's folk, who are involved in the the, uh, disreputable uh, squabble <laughs> that ends up with the fall of the, the death of Thingol and the fall of Doriath. Um, and their, their place, their place is named Khazad-dum. Thanks everybody. Yeah. I, most people are saying the audio is fine on go to webinar, which I think is, that's been my experience there too. Um, so, so I think it's, it's, it's a, it's either, it's a Facebook issue or an iOS issue or something. I, I, I have no idea what it is, but I think it's only in the Facebook feed. So my apologies for that. Um, anyway, okay. So, so again, data point number one, right? The long beards. They were the chief family of the dwarves in the summer and the one that most, that take most part of the action, right? Uh, in the, in the Silmarillion world. And the name Khazad-dum emerges as their home base. Data point number two. The dwarves in The Hobbit, right? Thorin Oakenshield, our company, are the long beards. That phrase is used. Right in the Hobbit, uh, when Thorin is acknowledging the name of Durin, right, he calls his family of dwarves the Longbeards, right, and Durin is their is their forefather, right. However, later in the story, when we get to the Elven King, right, and there's this allusion to something which sounds like but is not exactly the same as the story of the fall of Doriath, that 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 old story about the dispute between dwarves and the Wood Elves. Right in uh, in previous times, um, uh, which is again, which is a recycling of the Silmarillion material, but it is no, it is not the same as any version of that story uh, that Tolkien ever wrote in any of his earlier Silmarillion drafting stuff. Um, remember, in that passage in the Hobbit, the narrator tells us that the dwarves who had been involved in that fight in those old wars with the Wood Elves were not Thorin's family, 
right? Whereas in the Silmarillion stuff, it explicitly is the long beards, right? So, and, and which, and from the Hobbit's perspective, it's totally fine, right? He's recycling stuff. No one else has read the Silmarillion material as far as Tolkien knows. No one's ever going to read that Silmarillion material, right? So he's, he's recycling this. So he decides to have his cake and eat it too, right? I've got the long beards. Right, I'm going to recycle them, and I'm going to break Thorin Oakenshield will be the you know the head of the of the Longbeard clan, and this is going to be awesome, right? Um, but I'm going to what the heck? I'm going to I'm going to allude to this other thing with the Wood Elves, but I'm going to I'm going to distance them from it. It, it in this like alternate universe, right? It's not going to be, um, it's not going to be the the uh, the Longbeards who did that, right? Okay, so those are our two data points. What we get in The Hobbit about the Longbeards, right, and their identification of the Longbeards, whose base is at Erebor, right? And there's no evidence within The Hobbit story, there's no evidence that their home was somewhere else. The mountain, right, the Lonely Mountain, is the home of the dwarves, of, like, that is that is the ancestral kingdom of Thorin's family, clearly. Um, Moria is mentioned, but they're only called mines, for one thing, the mines of Moria, um, and there is no sense that that was the ancestral home of the dwarves and that they removed and set up a kingdom in exile in Erebor. Um, there's, it's not clear at all what the relationship is between the mines of Moria and Erebor geographically or, uh, or anything. I mean, it's, 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 they were connected, I, guess. I mean, there was a war fought um, with the goblins uh, of Moria, um, but again, there's no sense that that was their ancestral home. Okay. But now he's bringing these two things together. Now he's, he's not just recycling anymore. Now he's going to reconcile this. So we see in Balin's story, Tolkien beginning to work to reconcile the dwarvish story with the two, um, uh, the two versions of that, uh, uh, of that story, uh, that we get the Silmarillion version and the Hobbit versions. Okay. For Moria was of old, one of the wonders of the northern world. It is said that it was begun when the elder days were young, and Durin, father of my folk, was king. And with the passing of the years and the labor of countless hands, its mighty halls and streets, its shafts and endless galleries, pierced the mountains from east to west and delved immeasurably deep. But under the foundations of the hills, things long buried were waked at last from sleep as the world darkened, and days of dread and evil came. Long ago the dwarves fled from Moria, and forsook their wealth uncounted, and my folk wandered over the earth until far in the north they made new homes. But we have ever remembered Moria with fear and hope, and it is said in our songs that it shall be reopened and renamed ere the world ends. When again we were driven from the lonely mountain, Erebor, in the days of the dragon, Thror returned thither, but he was slain by an orc. And though that was revenged by Thorin and Dan, and many goblins were slain in war, none of Thror's folk, neither Thran, nor Thorin his son, nor Dan his sister's son, dared to pass its gates, until at last Balin listened to the whispers that I have spoken of, and resolved to depart. Okay. You see how we're bringing it together, right? Uh, you have Khazad-dûm, the ancestral home of the Longbeards in the Silmarillion which was in the Blue Mountains, right? Which in the published Silmarillion is called Nogrod, right? Uh, and is given a different dwarvish name. And you have Erebor, the ancestral home of the Longbeards in The Hobbit, right? So what does he do? Well, in typical Tolkienian fashion, he doesn't just eliminate one 
and say, forget about it. Right. Instead, he's like, okay, both of those stories are true. It's true that Casa Doom is the ancestral home of the of the Longbeards, and it's also true that Erebor is the ancestral home of the Longbeards. And so he he develops that migration story, and in the end, he finds like a, a tertium quid. Right. He he finds a, a third a third thing. Right. Uh, uh, and he finds that third thing in the minds of Moria, which again are alluded to quite vaguely in The Hobbit and, and were associated with war with the goblins, right? Because remember the great goblin and, and, and the rest of them remember, they know, that's, that's why they know Thorin and recognize his name, uh, because of the dwarf and goblin war about the mines of Moria. Um, and it was fought for vengeance, right? We have long since paid back the goblins of Moria. Uh, and next we need to give some thought to the necromancer. It was to avenge Thor, and now he's like, now we've got to avenge Thran, right? We avenge my grandfather, we've got to avenge my father and make a war against the necromancer, and Gandalf says, don't be a fool. Um, those were the only, those were the only uh, concepts associated with Moria. War of vengeance with the goblins, mines, right? That's it. That's what we know. Um, so by choosing Moria now, by, by making the one simple change, right? Now Moria is identified as Khazad-dûm, the traditional ancient ancestral home of the Longbeards, right? Now the whole thing comes together. Now the whole thing uh, can be reconciled. Um, yeah, kind of fun, right? Um, and Brandon, yes, it does make movie Gimli's, ob- you know, uh, sort of heaping score upon calling Moria a mine, um, really ironic in retrospect, right? Because, of course, it was just a mine, right? Um, long before, uh, in Tolkien's mind, long before it was uh, it was the ancestral home of the dwarves, um, which is kind of fun. Um, yeah. Good. Okay. Awesome. Um, so, I'm trying to remember if there's anything else I wanted to mention about this. I don't think so. Um... But uh, but again, I love to watch Tolkien do this. This is one of the things that I, I you know there are a bunch of things that I love about reading through these uh, uh, these early drafts. One of the things that I really love is watching Tolkien solve these kinds of problems, right? Um, and there are so many things that are just so characteristic of him. Uh, and one of the things that we can see that is super characteristic of Tolkien is this: I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna keep everything. Right? I'm gonna, I'm just gonna retain everything. Uh, I'm not gonna chuck anything out. Uh, I'm not just gonna if I got two things that contradict each other, I'm not just gonna decide on one or the other. Right? I'm gonna make them both true. <laughs> and that's that's it's classic. Right? It's classic and uh, and 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 really fun. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, really great question, Rachel. Rachel says, does as the world darkened refer to literal darkening or to evil coming? Let's see. Um, but under the foundation of the hills, things long buried were waked at last from sleep as the world darkened and days of dread and evil came. I assume that that has to mean um, metaphorical darkness. Though the, my question, Rachel, is which days of dread and evil are we talking about? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, 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 Gene, you're absolutely right. Tolkien was a lore hoarder, right? Um, 
uh, you know, sort of stacking these ideas on top of one one another to keep it all uh, together. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, okay. So, so yeah. So it, it's clearly metaphorical, Rach. I think I I think it's clearly metaphorical. But 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 for what? Okay. We're waked at last from sleep as the world darkened and days of dread and evil came. Which which days of dread and evil? When the elder days were young, um, uh, when the elder days were young is when Durin establishes Moria. Okay. So, theoretically, Days of Dread and Evil could be the end of the First Age. Like, the War of Wrath, right? When Morgoth took over most of the continent, and it looked like everything was pretty much done in right before the eucatastrophic inter- eucatastrophic, that is, intervention uh, of, uh, you know, from Valinor... Um, that's, that's, uh, would fit the description, right, of days of dread and evil, right, right up before the War of Wrath, that's possible. It could also be, I suppose, in the time before, what, the Last Alliance? Or maybe as Sauron was beginning to win earlier in the Second Age, before Arpharazon came with his armada? And uh, took Sauron away from Middle Earth. Um, remember, we've had we had. No, I was going to say remember the wars of Sauron and Eregion and the overcoming of Celebrimbor, but no, we don't have Celebrimbor yet, right? There's me reading back into this concept ideas which we don't know that Tolkien had thought of yet, right? We have no evidence for that. Um, so yeah, I don't think so. Um, all right, so what do we? Do we have an idea of Sauron's dominion earlier on? I guess, I mean, there's a vague sense that Sauron was strong before the Battle of the Last Alliance. And there's clearly the idea that Sauron was taking control prior to getting his butt kicked by Numenor. So it could be then. So I would say candidates for the time of the fall of the dwarves, right? Um, When... uh, the days of dread and evil, right? Either the end of the first age, right before the War of Wrath, or in the second age before Sauron went to Numenor. Those seem to me like the most likely candidates for the days that he's referring to. Um, but it's pretty unclear, and um, all he says is um, is just the the sort of the vaguest sense of chronology. Here, right, um, and we don't know how it connects with the outside world, which is kind of appropriate, right? Like the dwarves don't necessarily even know very much or care very much about what's going on in the outside world, right? Um, so he makes no references to it. Okay, all right, let's keep going. We are now in tonight's reading, by the way. That completes our catch-up material from the Council of Elrond. Okay, back to the plan for the quest and thinking about the count the the. Um, Fellowship, right? Who's going to be in the fellowship? Um, now, this is, of course, these are from Tolkien's notes. This is just the sketch of notes that Tolkien writes. This is not the narrative that he writes out. Though, of course, as we've seen before, as he's sketching out notes, you can see full sentences of narrative emerging, right? Like the second sentence uh, here in this passage. Elrond then says, Union of forces impossible. We cannot send or summon great force to aid Frodo. We must send our messages to all free folk to resist as long as possible, and that a new hope, 
though faint, is born. <laughs> and, if, and if you weren't thinking of Star Wars, there I was. But with Frodo must go helpers, and they should represent all the free folk. Nine should be the number to set against the nine evil servants. But we should support the war in Minas Tirith. Um, let's pause here for a second. Before we look at the composition of the company, right? Um, the big picture here is a fascinating one, and it's easy, I think, not to be thinking in these terms when we get to um, when we get to the published Lord of the Rings, right? When we're when we're doing the Council of Elrond, and we're at the beginning of the Ringo South, which is where we are here, and we have you know Elrond and Gandalf talking about the composition of the Fellowship. This question of like a union of forces. Um, that's not on the table, right? In the published text, the quest of Frodo is a covert op from day one, right? Um, and it's independent of... it's. There's a connection with all the free folk, right? Um, and the hopes of the, of the free folk of the West go with Frodo on his quest. But it's not exactly a microcosm, right? I... I'm saying this all kind of backwards. Look at how he's describing it here, right? Look at the concept in Elrond's mind uh, in this version. Elrond's plan A, a union of forces. A uni- in other words, what's Elrond's plan A? What's his first thought? His first thought is, Last Alliance Part 2, right? Let's make Elrond and Gilgalad into the penultimate alliance. Right? Let's 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 get the band back together, right? Except this time with hobbits, right? So let's get let's get the dwarves, let's get the elves, let's get the men, let's get the hobbits, let's all get together and make an army, and we'll march on, and we've got the ring, and that'll be cool. I'm not sure what we'll do, but we'll fight like we did last time, I guess, and take him out. Um, that is my understanding of what he means when he's referring to a union of forces, and he says, "Nah, it's not possible." Right, we we can't do the union of forces thing. So the the last alliance to make it. I agree, uh, Nancy. The penultimate alliance is a pretty good name. Uh, that would be a good band name. That would be a, a good name for a bunch of things, actually. Um, anyway, so we won't do the uh, the the whole penultimate alliance thing. But the, but that's the framework that he begins with. That's where his brain is. He's thinking of this as like the next incarnation of the last alliance, right? We cannot send or summon great force to aid Frodo. That's just, it's, we don't, we can't get that together, right? We must send our messages to all free folk to resist as long as possible and that a new hope, though faint, is born. So, we can't bring everybody together into an army, but Elrond is still, think- this is still a team effort, right? Everybody has a role to, pro- to play. The role of the company is to take the ring, is to pursue the faint hope, right? To take the ring to Mordor and try to get it destroyed. And, but everybody else has a role, too. And the role that everybody else plays uh, is to hold on, to resist as long as possible, and give Frodo and the Fellowship as much time as they can uh, get in order to get to uh, the mountain and destroy the ring. Um, but again, notice how he's going to send messages telling them that there is a new hope, right? And I'm, I'm not going to tell you what it is, right? It's classified, but um, 
but we're we're still in a team, right? We can't form up a big old army like the last alliance, but we, the free peoples, we're still all a team, and we need to act in teamwork, right? We need to coordinate. And it's everybody, y'all resist, right? Uh, and we'll try to set that up as best we can while Frodo heads to the uh, on, on his own, not with an army at his back of all the free peoples, but uh, but uh, but nevertheless, everyone's going to be involved, right? This is going to be a team effort from the beginning, and therefore the composition of the company becomes a microcosm of that team effort, right? I can't bring together a big army for the new Last Alliance, but I'm going to. Therefore, I'm going to decree that the Fellowship is to be a microcosm, a sort of a synecdoche of the Last Alliance, right? Um, uh, but with Frodo must go helpers, and they should represent all the free folk. In the context here, I, I place the primary emphasis on should there, because we should be forming the new Last Alliance, right? The the really Last Alliance, or whatever they would call it, Um uh, because that's kind of what we should be doing, uh, it is therefore that, that it is for that reason that the nine should represent all the free folk. Um, and nine should be their number to set against the nine evil servants. Uh, and even that symbolism is really interesting in this context, right? Just as we would, if we could, assemble an army of all of the free peoples in order to oppose the force of Sauron on the field, right? We can't do that. So instead, we'll take, he sent out his task force, right, of the nine ringwraiths, our task force that we're sending out in, like, response or contradiction or whatever, right? Um, they're also going to be nine to court to, to, to show that we are, we are, matching. So we're coming up against Sauron like the last alliance did, right? Um, the connect- in, in other words, before reading this little plot outline, I had never really connected the Fellowship and its composition to the last alliance nearly as directly, right? Sort of seeing it as that kind of a stand-in for the last alliance. Um, even not just a stand-in, but again, in this conception, uh, a portion of, Right? Um, the, 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 um, just sort of like the leading squadron within the larger alliance that is still going to be acting, even though they can't be assembled. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, um, Good. And yeah, both Brandon and James are really interested in the fact that half-elves are represented as a race here. I agree. That's really interesting. Um, and, oh, well, we'll come to that in a second. Let's 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 read it through first. So, okay, so after this we get the, the list, right? The list of um, of folks who are going to make the, the fellowship. Galdor Legolas. Right, so this seems to be the moment where Galdor was the name of the elf in the party uh, beforehand, the elf of Mirkwood who comes to the council. Um, this is the moment where his name changes to Legolas. And of course, as Christopher reminds us in his commentary, uh, Legolas was already <clears throat> a name that Tolkien was recycling. Legolas Greenleaf in that, of the House of Galdor uh, in Gondolin. He was one of the elves of Gondolin, and he was uh, mostly noted. He was the one who was serving as the guide uh, to Eärendil. When Eärendil and Idril uh, flee, uh, and, and uh, Tuor catches up, uh, when they flee from Gondolin after the fall, um, uh, it's Legolas Greenleaf. 
uh, who is uh, their guide because he has he's the longest sighted. He has the greatest vision of any of the elves uh, of Gondolin. Um, so you remember that comment about uh, him being Le- Legolas being able to tell the difference between a sparrow and a finch a, a league off, right? Um, uh, that's that's a reference back to Legolas Greenleaf, the very sharp sighted um, from Gondolin. So the character of Legolas gets the character, the old Legolas, the old Legolas from Gondolin gets recycled here. He shifted, right? He's, he's not from Gondolin anymore. Uh, that's something that Tolkien is just appropriating the name. But as we can tell from the vision thing, not just the name, right? The concept of the character uh, in more ways than just the name um, is being appropriated to, uh, uh, to the Prince of, uh, of Mirkwood here. Um, but, uh, okay. So, um, so Legolas, right? We got Galdor and Legolas. He's, he scratches those notes. Now we're going to start the list. So hobbits, two hobbits, right? Frodo and Sam. I love that. Promised, right? We, we, we've got to include Sam. We promised that we like Elrond promised at the end of the council. It's not just that Gandalf promised or Sam promised. It's Elrond's promise, right? So Elrond has already said he could include Sam. So he's 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 he's, he's stuck with that. So we got we got Frodo and Sam. Um, wizards, Gandalf. First of all, notice that wizards are a demographic that need representation. Isn't that kind of cool? Right? Uh, okay, so we have Gandalf to represent the wizards. We have Legolas to represent the elves. We have Aristor to represent the half elves. We have Aragorn and Boromir to represent men. And then we have Gimli, son of Glowen, to represent the dwarves. And that totals eight. Right, and then we've got Merry and Pippin. They insist on going, and then he 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 writes Pippin only if Aristor does not go, and then strikes that out. Right and now, of course, the distinction that maybe Merry will make the cut and Pippin won't. Remember that fits with the earlier conception that we looked at at the very beginning of tonight's class, where Merry was going to be more gung ho to go than Pippin, and Gandalf wants to send somebody back to the Shire anyway, foreboding that there's going to be work to be done at the Shire. So, um, the idea, he seems in, when he's making this list, it seems to me that he's still toying with the idea of now maybe Mary can come along after all, but maybe Pippin is still going to, uh, is still going to head back. Um, uh, yeah, and Yana, I agree. The number of wizards does not seem to be de- either determined or particularly small. I agree with both of those statements. Um, wizards seem certainly to be a demographic that deserve representation uh, in the council, not because they're a separate race necessarily. Maybe they are, but I don't know. I don't have much reason to think of them as a separate race, but um, but a separate demographic, a, a, a sort of... When we're gathering, if we're thinking about gathering together the free people to oppose Sauron, the wizards, right, the wizards of the White Council, they're clearly going to be uh, a, a, a group that we're going to bring together, right, that we would list, right? Okay, let's bring together the elves, the dwarves, the men, the wizards, right, clearly. Um, so having him represent them makes some kind of, makes makes some good sense. Um, I agree, with everybody who is, and there are several of you who are saying that it seems really weird to list the half elves, half elves as a demographic, right? Um, uh, Julie asks, "Who is Aristor the half elf?" No idea. 
I have no idea who Aristor the Half-Elf is. I mean, I know who, I mean, Aristor, you'll remember, is going to be a name of an elf who's going to be, who's going to stay at the council, right? And he's going to be there in the published text, but he's not a half-elf, he's an elf. Um, one of Elrond's household, right? He's Aristor of Rivendell. Um, but, um, why, why half-elves? I have a theory. I have a theory about this. Um, Remember, we're reconciling the Hobbit, right? We are integrating that the, the Silmarillion is now going this middle path, right? The Silmarillion is over here, the Hobbit is over here, and the Lord of the Rings is drawing the two of them together now and integrating the two of them explicitly. This is one of the contradictions between... Just as there was that contradiction that said that Thorin's family was not the one, right, that was involved in that unfortunate conflict with the Wood Elves. That was one contradiction, and we already saw Tolkien taking some steps to adjust that one, right? This is another contradiction. It's one that a lot of people overlook, but it's a pretty glaring contradiction when you look at it carefully. Uh, Remember in The Hobbit, it says that Elrond is... that there were in those days people, plural who have the blood of heroes of old and of elves, uh, uh, you know, in them, right? Half-elves. And of those people, Elrond was chief. Um, That's what it says in The Hobbit. Um, It is clearly uh, a category of people um, of whom Elrond is is the chief. It's a demographic in The Hobbit, right? It's not, that's nowhere is that consistent. And it's, it has nothing to do with chronology. There was never a time in the Silmarillion history when that was true. When Elrond was the chief of a demographic of folks who were part elf and part man. Um, from the beginning of the conception of Elrond, and he was a relatively early construction uh, in the Silmarillion. You don't have to go back very far. He's in, I think he's in the 1928 sketch of the mythology um, before he did the, before Tolkien wrote the first Quinta in, in the Quinta in Noldorinwa in 1930. I'm pretty sure Elrond is there in the sketch in the 1928 sketch of the mythology. So Elrond is pretty old. He's not in the Book of Lost Tales, but he's pretty old uh, as far as the chronology of Tolkien's uh, creation is concerned. Um, and from the earliest point, Elrond's role always, always was he was the focal point, right? The, the, the sort of the great stories and the great families the heroes of old and the elves, you know, the, the relation, the elf human relationships of which there were only ever two, right? Two or in Idril and Baron and Luthien. And both of them come down to a point. Elrond is the outcome of all of them. He is the crux. He is the pivot point. He is the last survivor and like personal represent, representative of the first age, right? Um, he is unique. He was always unique. Uh, and even after he's been cloned and now has a twin brother, they still, the two of them are unique. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, exactly, exactly, Yana. He was way older than Elros. Um, uh, so even, even after that, even after that, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's clear. So, um, you know, could Aristor be a sort of an Elrond representative? Well, yes, Kate, but he wouldn't be labeled a half-elf if he were just an elf of Rivendell who's like, I'm going to represent, you know, Rivendell and Elrond in this affair. Yeah, but that's only a, you know, 
Like, I'm here, like, I'm a proxy for the half-elves, is basically what he would be in that case. And that's not what it says, right? Um, this list, none of the rest of them are proxies, right? These are actual representatives of the demographics. Um, so I have to think that at this moment, the moment that he jotted this list down on the page, he was going to make Aristor of Rivendell a half-elf. And that suggests to me that he, and, and I, I think I can see the reason why he would do that. You could see, why, it's really clear Elrond is the only half-elf. Why would, other than Elrond's family, which is one, one way it gets around this in the future, other than Elrond's descendants, you know, his children, um, there wouldn't be any other half-elves. That's only if you choose the Silmarillion side. Remember, we got two stories, right? Silmarillion version, Hobbit version. If you choose the Silmarillion story and just try to, try to sweep the Hobbit version under the rug then yeah, that's how it is, right? But that decision hasn't been made yet. And I, it is my theory that when he wrote that down, half-elf, Aristor, five, right? He is at least toying with the idea of adopting the Hobbit plan and trying to work the Hobbit concept of a group of half-elves with Elrond as the chief backwards into the Silmarillion tradition. The still, you know half-written and re-revised Silmarillion tradition. Um, uh, yeah, but no, but see, Kate, it, it, yes, he's representing Elrond as half-elf because Elrond is a half-elf, but he's not a half-elf. Again, it would still just be legalism. It would still be, to- you know, it would still be, um, it would still just be a proxy. He himself has to be a half-elf or else the rest of this list doesn't make any, it, none of the rest of the list works that way. I think Ar- Aristor is a half-elf, or at least in this moment, he's considering making Aristor a half-elf. Now, in the, of course, we know in the end he's not going to pursue this idea, right? In the end, this is going to be a moment where, with this particular contradiction between the Silmarillion and the Hobbit, he's just going to kind of quietly drop the Hobbit thing. He doesn't do that very much, but he is going to do that here, right? Um, let's uh, let's just... We, easier to explain that as a confusion on Bilbo's part when he originally wrote that version of the story, right? Um, but, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, so yeah, so he's, he's, um, I think that he's, that. so that to me is a really, really interesting concept and really fun to think about what would that have looked like, right? If, if, if that's really where he was going to go, what would he have done? How would that have worked? Um, uh, who is Aristor then, if he's a half elf? How is he a half elf? Right? What's going to be the backstory to that? How is that going to change the Quintus Silmarillion? I don't know. Right? And remember, he hasn't finished the Quintus Silmarillion, the 1937 Quinta. He got as far as where did he get? Turin Turinbar, right? Um, and then dropped it to write the Lord of the Rings. Um, so. There's still plenty of time, right? We still got plenty of time to shoehorn some more half elves into the equation before the end of the first age this time through. Um, uh, so yeah, I don't really, um, I don't really know. Yeah, Veronica. Yeah, it seems quite likely. Maybe there are going to be other marriages between elves and men, right? There, there might still be like the two major iconic ones, right? Um, but those are like royal marriages, right? Baron and Luthien and Tuor and Idril, right? Maybe there were a bunch of, like, you know, elf and human peasants, right, who who got, uh, who got hitched, right, and who ended up having kids. Remember, this is not an absurd idea. 
that idea survives into the Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? Right? Remember Prince Imrahil uh, and the uh, uh, and the the elves of Nimrodel, right? So the idea that there are in fact some other unions of elves and men that don't really make the big list, right? Uh, that aren't really, they're not the big three, but they still they're still interbreeding, right? We do have at least one example that survives into the published Lord of the Rings. Still way down the road, right? We don't have uh, we don't even really have Gondor fleshed out, much less Prince Imrahil yet, but. Um, uh, yeah, or Yana, yes, it is possible we could also just incre- increase the breeding of the marriages we have, right? Uh, if 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 Idril and Tuor could only pump out more children, then okay, you know, we could help to solve this. Let's give let's give uh, give out on a bunch of aunts and uncles and cousins, right? Then okay, then then we have it. That's also that's also that's also quite possible. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, Oh, sorry, last point I wanted to make. Shall Pippin return to the Shire? There again, I think we can see pretty clearly he's thinking of splitting up Merry and Pippin here, right? He's not... The the question that he's underlining there at the bottom of this list, right, is not, shall Merry and Pippin return to the Shire, but just, shall Pippin return to the Shire, right? Merry's clearly in. Merry's number nine, right? Merry is obviously slotted into the, in, into the nine spot here. Uh, the question is, what about Pippin? Is Pippin going to displace Aristor? Or is he going to go back to the Shire? And that was the thing that Tolkien was unclear about at the time. All right. Um, two tidbits that really jumped out at me in this section. After Gandalf's remark that his fate seems much entangled with the hobbits, Elrond says, You will be needed many times before the journey's end, Gandalf, but maybe when there is most need, you will not be there. This is your greatest peril, and I shall not have peace till I see you again. The loss of Gandalf was, of course, foreseen. This is Christopher talking. The loss of Gandalf was, of course, foreseen. And he, uh, Christopher here is referring us back to that brief list of notes that we got, I believe, at the very end, after we reached Balin's tomb. There was that one list of notes that Tolkien made, uh, sort of projecting the future from there. Um, and there was a, an illusion which sounds like he was anticipating Gandalf's death. Um, uh, pretty early on in the game. That's what Christopher is referring to there. Okay, Aragorn, after saying to Frodo that since he himself is going to Minas Tirith, their roads lie together for many hundreds of leagues, adds, Indeed it is my counsel that you should go first to that city. And after saying that for uh, and after saying that for the two unfilled places needed to make nine, he may be able but the passage was at once deleted. The elf lords I may not send, for though their power is great, it is not great enough. They cannot walk unhidden from wraith and spirit of evil, and news of the company would reach Mordor by day or night. Um, okay, so two things that I want to emphasize, and then remind me to come back to a third thing. So two things. Thing number one, Gandalf's death, right? Um Of course, the uh, ominous, uh, the foresight of Elrond, or the foreboding of Elrond, the warning of Gandalf's uh, probable death, right, Uh, or at least uh, future discomfiture, Elrond's anxiety on Gandalf's behalf, obviously that's not going to make the cuts into the final text, though you'll recall it's going to get displaced to Aragorn, right? Aragorn is going to, you know, he's going to get his, like, and I say to you, Gandalf, if you enter the gates of Moria, beware, right? Um, so he's, he's, uh, the idea that someone has a foreboding of Gandalf's death is, is, is here to stay. 
But it's interesting to me that it's given to Elrond at the first time. Notice first the emphasis on the personal relationship between Elrond and Gandalf. That's, I mean, that's very touching, right? I shall not have peace till I see you again. I'm really worried about you, friend, right? Uh, and I, I'm, I, my heart tells me you're not going to make it. Uh, and, I'm, and, that, and that and that makes me sad, right? So that's uh, one touch that I really like about this about this moment. Um, but notice the way that he he's not just saying like I have a foreboding of bad for you, Gandalf. Uh, you will be needed many times, but maybe when there is most need, you will not be there, right? Um, it's like he draws the conclusion from that, right? Um, uh, that get something bad is going to happen to Gandalf, but it's not primarily about the bad thing happening to Gandalf. His foreboding is primarily about the role that Gandalf is going to play, or, or, or in that moment, not play. Right. Um, so he's having a foresight about the fate of the company, right, and what the company is going to be doing, not about, um, not or not primarily, not not focusing upon uh, Gandalf's fate personally. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, okay, so second thing that I wanted to point out here is the business about the Elf Lords, right? Um, Kate says it reads like Gorfindel's would show up on Sauron's Marauder's map. Yeah, um, this is m- much stronger language uh, than we got in than, than we get in the published text. Right in the published text, he merely says, um, told you know, Ed Elrond merely says, even if Glorfindel went with you, his power wouldn't be enough to win through by force. Right. So, I mean, yeah, like having Gorfindel around would be handy, but it's not going to make the difference in itself. Right. It's it's not enough to guarantee victory. So, what's the point? Right. Um, here, this is much, much stronger. It's not just that it's going to be an insufficiently large degree of help, right? It's he's going to be a liability. Uh, we can't send an elf lord. The worst thing we could do is send a great elf lord with you because they're going to give you away. They stick out like a sore thumb. They cannot hide from wraith or spirit of evil. Remember, And this is an allusion back to that conversation that Gandalf and Bingo at first, Gandalf and Frodo had after the Ford of Bruinen about the other side and Glorfindel appearing, you know, seeing Glorfindel for a moment as he is on the other side, right? Um, and Elrond is saying that's how Glorfindel looks to the ring raids all the time, right? You're not going to be able to go into stealth mode on your way into Mordor when one of your party is like glowing like a beacon the whole time, right? I mean, he can, Glorfindel can't sneak. Well, can't sneak past the ring rays in any case. Um, <laughs> Kate thinks it might be the elf smell, right? Yeah, it smells like elves. Right? Somebody, the orcs are going to be like, hmm, it smells like elves, uh, possibly. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, Nancy says, so Legolas isn't important enough to have this problem. Yes, exactly. Uh, because, um, um, because they, uh, the, the, it's explicitly already, it's explicitly, to, Gandalf says it's elves that have been to Valinor who are, are there. So when and Elrond says elf lord, that's what he means. He's talking about the Noldors. The Noldors. Listen to me. He's talking about the Noldor, right? Uh, and um, uh, 
Uh, so th- they're the ones that are all sparkly <laughs> in this way, right? Uh, uh, sparkly terrades. Um, Legolas is is not. He's he's uh, uh, he's a Morquendi. Um, he does not exactly walk uh, at once in both worlds. Um, so Legolas can sneak around uh, around elves and um, and Jean. Oh my goodness, is that true? Um, the Lord of the Rings Online just released the high elf character race, playable character race. Is it true that high elves can't be burglars? That they excluded them from being burglars because they can't sneak? Is that true? I didn't. I didn't. I, I haven't tried to create a, a high elf yet. Really, you can't choose burglar as a as a. a, a that's awesome. Actually, that's really pretty. See again, like everything, uh, 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 almost everything the Lotro people do impresses me anew. That's 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 quite awesome. Um, and uh, um, yes, uh, and Evan, I think. Well, I don't know that this passage. Evan is asking: Is this evidence that Gandalf is 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 not perceived in Tolkien's mind yet as a as a Maya? Um, Evan, I'm not sure if this passage gives us direct evidence of it because the fact that elf lords, you know, shine in the darkness to wraiths doesn't necessarily mean that a Maya like Gandalf would. He's in a different place. His relationship with his body is different. His his spirit is of a different kind. Um, I don't think it necessarily proves that Gandalf would be in that category either. However, I do think that there is very little... There's... I haven't seen any evidence yet from any of the texts of the Return of the Shadow or the Treason of Isengard that we've done so far that suggests that Gandalf is anything more than a guy. Um, it's it's becoming increasingly unclear what wizards are. Um, they were they seem to just be men. In the Hobbit, he's a he's a he's a man. Seems to be a man, right? The the question. Remember, Frodo is asking the question already. What is Gandalf, right? In chapter two. Um, and the question of how much Gandalf has aged, right, is is an issue. So we're we're already, you know, Tolkien has begun to kind of open the question of what exactly is the identity of Gandalf. What 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 race is he? He's not an elf, but he's not a man, is he? Um, and it's possible that the list of wizards in that demographics of the free people list that we got on the previous slide hints that the idea that the wizard wizard is ceasing to be a profession and becoming an ethnicity, right? Um, you know, it's, it's not a character class, it's a character race, right? Increasingly, maybe, uh, or maybe both. Um, but anyway, that's, that's, it's certainly unclear that, uh, that Tolkien has resolved that. I see no evidence that he's made the decision about Gandalf being a Maya yet. Um, but, uh, but I'm not sure that this passage necessarily gives, uh, evidence, uh, for that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Tom, you're right. Gandalf's nature, even as it's later conceived, uh, is concealed. Direct opposition revealing himself in that way. Uh, Gandalf the Grey uh, is not, in fact, uncloaked very often. Um, so he's, he doesn't show himself very much. So even when that conception is... Uh, uh, he, he, the fact that he can cloak himself, right? The fact that Gandalf the Grey needs to be uncloaked suggests that he can sneak. Right, uh, maybe Gorfindel can't, but Gandalf seems to be able to. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, John says that this passage, though it may allude to the death of Gandalf, doesn't point directly point to a resurrected Gandalf. Is that already part of the overall plan? I'm not remembering 
with crystal clarity, the reference in The Return of the Shadow to this, I think... I'm pretty sure I remember Christopher Tolkien asserting that the death and return of Gandalf was already anticipated, uh, is is already at least a sort of a vague idea. I, I, that's when I, and so I'm recalling a reference to a return also, Yana. Um, but I, uh, uh, I don't remember the passage directly. Um, so anyway, okay. All right. Third thing uh, that I wanted to not forget to do, the reference to Minas Tirith, since he himself is going to Minas Tirith. Very briefly, a passage, I think I meant to mention about this before we moved on. The road should go to Minas Tirith, therefore, so far at least, should go Aragorn, Boromir, Gimli. Right? Okay. In the published text, the debate, do we go to Mordor or do we go to Minas Tirith? Right? Um, isn't really all that much of a debate, right? That is to say, if Sam points that out, right? He's like, oh, what, what's the good of Minas Tirith, right? Meaning no offense, right? Um, uh, he says to Boromir. Um, but Sam it calls a spade a spade and says, like, look, this is not going to Minas Tirith. Let's face it, people. Going to Minas Tirith is a dumb move, right? Um, we should be, obviously, our quest is to go to Mordor, Let's not worry about Minas Tirith. So there is a sense in which the debate about what their destination should be, it's not a real debate. I mean, it is a real debate, but what's at stake there is not what is the best strategy. What is at, what is at debate there is what do we want to do? Where are our hearts leading us, right? Are we willing to make the final step and go into Mordor, or would we rather go somewhere safer, right? Um, what are we going to choose for Aragorn? What's he going to choose, right? Going to Minas Tirith, uh, uh, as he promised he would do, or seeing Frodo through to the end of his mission, right? So I'm not saying there aren't real choices to be made, um, but as far as the like projected path of the party, going to Minas Tirith doesn't actually make much sense, as I say, Sam points that out. However, think about it from here. Remembering the framework, remembering the new Last Alliance framework, the road should go to Minas Tirith, right? I mean, that's the plan. We're setting out for Minas Tirith. The company, the 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 microcosm of the free folk, right? The synecdoche, the synecdotal form of the new Last Alliance, right? Uh, the new the new Last Alliance in miniature, they're going to Minas Tirith, um, which from a Last Alliance framework, makes sense, right? Uh, that's what the, the Last Alliance marches down and, and goes into battle. Um, so, yeah, sure, right, absolutely. Um, why wouldn't it? And also remember, he doesn't know how the story's going to go. He's not foreseen that moment of choice that they're going to have at Parth Galen, right? Um, but from here, from Rivendell, uh, the second time through... Uh, the second time he's gotten this far, Tolkien is saying, yeah, Minas Tirith, clearly, right? And again, from a, not, from a Last Alliance point of view, that makes all kinds of sense. It's going to make less sense later on. Okay, um, I was just reminded by the Aragorn, since he himself is going to Minas Tirith line. Let's keep going. Really awesome stuff here. Okay, again, two points I want to make here. Gandalf replying said, we at least cannot stay in that valley. We must go down. They're talking about the geography of of Moria, and so he's that valley is as an Ulbazar. After they cross the mountains, right? Um, they can't stay in 
the Dimrel Dale, right? Okay, we at least cannot stay in that valley. We must go down to Morthond into the woods of Lothlorien. Remember, Morthond is the name of the river, right, that comes out of... So you've got Moria, you've got Chaledzaram, right? The Miramir and the river that flows out of it. The river that flows out of it in the book, of course, is the Silver Lode. It's not, gonna, it's not called the Silver Lode at first. He's going to call it the Morthond, right? The Black Root. Um, and it flows into the woods of Lothlorien, Fellowship of the Ring, into the secret woods. This is where, as it seems, the name Lothlorien... This is Christopher again speaking. This is where, as it seems, the name Lothlorien first appears. And when Mary asked, yes, and where then, the wizard answered, to the end of the journey, in the end. It may be that you will pass through Fangorn, which some call the topless forest. Don't Google that, by the way. But we must not look too far ahead. The reference to Fangorn was deleted. Several versions of Legolas's words about the Forgotten Elves of Holland were written before the final form was achieved. So let's hang on for a second. Um, uh, the... Uh, um, uh, Let's look at point one for the second point I want to talk about is the comment that Legolas makes about Holland, which is pretty freaking awesome. But let's look at this first one first. Um, Lothlorien. Lothlorien has appeared for the first time. Look how vague that is. Remember how we've seen before Tolkien projecting his plot forward, um, really projecting his whole world, the mental map that he has of his world and everything as a string of beads, right? As a series of adventures that he is putting in the path of his protagonists, right? Um, Fangorn has been a prominent bead on that chain now for some time, right? As an antagonist that's likely to need to be overcome. Right, as one of those obstacles. Fangorn was there, the Dead Marshes soon joined them, Moria, right, as a probable thing. Now we're getting a thing in between Moria and Fangorn, right? Lothlorien. Um uh, and this is where it seems Lothlorien first appears. Don't think about Galadriel, right? Still no evidence. I absolutely agree, Marianne. It does not seem to have any... There's no reason to think that Tolkien has the first clue what is in Lothlorien. It's just his name, right? And the name is interesting, right? Remember how Treebeard translates Lothlorien? What is the translation of Lothlorien according to Treebeard? Yeah, Brian asks, is it any more than a name? Yeah, I don't think so. Yes, exactly, Nancy. Um, all right, uh, good. Nancy, James, and Josiah, okay. and Kate. Dreamflower. The Dreamflower, it's called. Right? Um, that's all we have. That's all we have is the name, right? Uh, and assuming that's how he was already thinking of translating it, who knows what that means, right? Um, again, he has tended to think in terms of adventures along the way, Right? That sounds like an interesting adventure if it goes through the Dreamflower forest, right? Are we going to get some uncanny forest with, like, visions and sort of, you know, like delusions or illusions or enchantments or things? Um, remember, that's kind of the stories that Bor- it's how Boromir still thinks of it, right, when we get there later on. Um we don't really know. Exact puppies, puppies, says Kate. Yeah, something like that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Uh, Sharon says, a return to Bomber falling asleep. Yes, fleshing out that kind of idea. That was always one of the sub-threads of the Mirkwood story in The Hobbit, right? This uncanny elvish enchantment forest. Right, with Bomber and the and the stream being uh, one of the one of the most prominent examples of that, um, so th- that sort of extrapolating that kind of thing, it's literally all we have to go on. Right, we have no call yet to be thinking about Lothlorien or Celeborn or the the Galathrim or any of that stuff. Uh, Malorn trees, um, no um, no clue about that here. Um, so. Uh, okay, so let's, um, so that's, that's interesting. The other interesting thing to me is the name of the river, the Morthond, right? It's going to be changed to the Silverlode. We'll see later on the Silverlode already, in fact, he's going to swap their names, right? The Silverlode is the name given to the river, which in the published text is the Morthond, and he calls what in the published text is the Silverlode, the Morthond. So he just swaps those two names, the Morthond, the river in Gondor. Um, it's called the Black Root, which makes all kinds of sense. Of course, what, what else are you going to call the river that comes out of the Black Pit, right? The mines of Moria. You're going to call it the Black Root, right? The the river that has its root, that has its uh, that has its springs in the Black Pit, right? So the Morthon is a great name for a river that flows out of Moria. So what changes? Why do we call it the Silverlode instead? Right? Why does he decide that Silverload is more fitting? And I think that has to be when Lorien changes, right? Uh, when he fleshes out the idea of Lothlorien, when the Silverload, when that river ceases to be primarily that river which emerges from Moria and instead becomes the river of Lothlorien, right? Um, then it's reprioritized and no longer is Blackroot the fitting name for it, right? It needs to be the... It, we need it to be silvery, not black, right? Um, because the area has changed once his conception of Lorien uh, grows, right? But that hasn't happened yet. Now its chief claim to fame is that it comes out of Moria, so it's the black root, right? Um, he's going to switch it to that river in Gondor, but of course he's going to have an explanation still for why it's called the black root, right? Right? Um, because it's going to be associated with uh, with Erech and the Stone of Erech and the uh, and the Oathbreakers later on. But anyway, okay. Um, so so anyway, so that's that's all that's that's all very cool. But now the second part. Several versions of Legolas's words about the forgotten elves of Holland were written before the final form was achieved. The first reads. That is true, said Legolas, but the elves of this land were of a strange race, and the spirit that dwells here is alien to me, who am of the woodland folk. Here dwelt Noldor, the elven wise, and all the stones cry to me with many, uh, the stones about cry to me with many voices. They built high towers to heaven and delved deep to earth, and they are gone. They are gone. They sought the havens long ago. Uh, Evan is asking, how would Legolas know that the elves sought the havens? He says. He said, the, the rocks are telling him that. He didn't know. He didn't know. He's just learned that from the rocks. Right? Um, 
Do you, do you see the mind-blowing sentence in that paragraph? The elves of this land were of a strange race, and the spirit that dwells here is alien to me. The spirit that dwells here is alien to me. I think he means like there is a, a like Karathras is a spirit who dwells in that mountain and he is hostile, right? I don't necessarily think it's necess- it could be Karathras, right? Karathras could be the like, governing spirit of the whole region. Um, but there is a spirit that lives here which Legolas knows is not friendly with him because he is of the woodland folk. So, like, tree spirits, he's cool with, right? Uh, Legolas would probably have plenty to talk about with Goldberry, for instance, right? But not so much the, like, rock spirit of this land who used to hang with the Noldor of this land, right? Um... Yeah, Stephen says this put, it puts me in mind of the Eldila. Yes, yeah. Well, the El, uh, Lewis's Eldila and Tolkien's Maya um, are very similar. I mean, and the 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 Valar and Maya. Um, and yes, Brian and Marianne were both saying at the same time, alien does not have to mean does alien have to mean not friendly or just wholly unfamiliar? Um, no, I, I don't think he's saying it's hostile. I think if the spirit of that land were hostile to him, he wouldn't be having these conversations with the rocks, right? Um, uh, you know, I mean, if the spirit, if if all the spirit of that uh, that dwells there was saying to Legolas was get out, you know, that like it would, that would have been different, right? He's clearly, he, he is establishing some kind of rapport. He's talking to the rocks for crying out loud. Right. Um, and I, I what he's referring to, we, we remember, we have two surviving instances of this, right? We have Karathras and we have Goldberry, Right. Um, and it seems, looking at this passage, it seems that, um, I don't know, thinking about uh, Elrond's words about Bilbo, right? That perhaps Goldberry uh, is not quite so alone and singular as we might have thought her, right? She is the only nature spirit of this kind that we meet in The Lord of the Rings. There's Karathras, who is kind of similar, right? Seems to be kind of similar. Much, much less, much less friendly and inviting than Goldberry, um, but still similar in the sense that he is a, sort of a nature spirit. Um, but we, I mean, so we meet Goldberry. We have no reason to think that there aren't other spirits like Goldberry. Um, you know, do the other rivers have daughters also? Right, presumably they do. Right, if we only just meet the the daughter of the Withywindle, right? Uh, who is Goldberry, but probably the other, the Brandywine probably has a daughter too, right? Why not? Um, this, by the way, is why I'm really interested in the way that the Lord of the Rings Online does, they have more water spirits, right, in other rivers, and one in Lake Evendim, right, uh, who is a very powerful one. Um, there's no justification in the books for doing that, 
accept things like this, right? It does seem to me, I, I agree with uh, the Lotro developers' reading of Tolkien in that. That does seem to be Tolkien's concept, that there are, in fact, many spirits like that who dwell in, in a region and who look after that region um, uh, and could be harmed or grieved by things happening in that region, as apparently the spirits of the stones in this region are still lamenting the death of the elves. They didn't intervene and stop it, right? The, they didn't keep the elves there. They didn't, um, uh, they, you know, they didn't prevent whatever tragedy occurred in Holland, which is not yet clear. Um, but they still remember them, the elves, and they still lament their absence. They are gone. They are gone. Um, uh, yeah, interesting. Tom Hillman says, Gilor tells Frodo that the Shire doesn't belong to hobbits. Who then? This, Tom, is exactly what I wanted to come back to when I was talking about Sauron's power faltering in the Shire, right? Um, it seems to me entirely... From this point of view, if there is a spirit that dwells in this land that loved the Noldor, right... Uh, and remembers fondly the Noldor who used to dwell there and build high towers to heaven. Might there be a spirit in the Shire, right, who is looking after the Shire, and whose power and influence dampens the power of the Ringwraiths and limits them uh, in certain ways when they're there? I think it's quite possible. Um, That seems to me... uh, that seems to me entirely likely that that would occur. Um, I don't know. I mean, he never says so, right? We never get it. I don't remember any even vague reference to a spirit of the Shire in this sense. But that is why, to me, I find this passage mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Because that, that, that Legos would just toss that off. The spirit that dwells here is alien to me. I don't... I You know, this land is a little strange because, like, the spirit of this land is weird, and I don't understand him, right? Um, he, again, he just tosses that off. And um, I... I have to assume, given the clear presence of and identity of Goldberry, the less clear but still fairly plain... Um, presence of Karathras and some malignant spirit of the mountain, when you take those and you put this passage in the middle of them, um, it really does seem to open the doors to suggest that, yes, Tolkien is believing that all over the place there are different spirits that are living in different places. Um, does it have a body, Veronica? I don't know. Can it manifest? A, I mean, it doesn't natively have a body. It's not incarnate. None of these would be incarnate. Even Goldberry isn't incarnate, but they can make a body. All the Maya, Maya and Valar can make a body. Um, and again, this fits in the Silmarillion mode perfectly well. We know, we know that all of the Valar have people, right? Manway has a bunch of air spirits that are of his folk, right? Um, there are folk of Earth and folk, you know, Yavanna has folk and, and Aule has folk and Olmo has folk, right? Um, so the idea that, like, of those fo- of those large you know, uh, sort of uh, an indistinguished group of folk that each of these Valar have. Basically, Goldberry is one of is one of almost folk, 
right? Karathras would be one of Olmo's, or Aule's folk, presumably, right? Um, we don't know their backstory, right? We don't know how they ended up coming to this one particular place, but why wouldn't we think they wouldn't do that, right? So, um, uh, so Kate, yes, I assume that the 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 Maya of this land, the spirit that dwells here, that Legolas refers to, would pr- presumably be uh, a Maya in service to Aule, um, both because of the whole stone thing, right, uh, and because of the um, the uh, the connection with the Noldor too. That sort of works, right? Um, and Marianne, does it mean that Karathras would be an evil Maya? Basically, but I don't know. I mean, here's an idea. What if Old Man Willow is to trees what Karathras is to mountains, right? Maybe he's gone bad in some sense. Not that, like, he's been converted to evil or something, not that he's a servant of Sauron, but maybe he's kind of gotten crusty in his old age, like Old Man Willow does, right? Uh, And he, like Old Man Willow, is all, get off my lawn, when people are trying to come through now. Um, That seems quite possible, right? Um, And, I mean, even, of course, as an explanation of Old Man Willow, that makes sense. Who is Old Man Willow? What is Old Man Willow? One of Yavanna's folk, conceivably, right? Who has uh, gone uh, gone rotten a bit. Yes, Jennifer. Karathras is not a tame Maya. Certainly not. Certainly not. Um, anyway, I want to be uh, I want to be careful because I I'm tossing around the word Maya all the time, right? Tolkien hasn't used that word at all. We've not seen. The, but I'm using it anyway, because that's the word that he uses in the Silmarillion context, and it's clear that he's doing integration of the Silmarillion stuff. So we look at this this spirits of the landscape here in the Lord of the Rings, and we say, does it fit within, you know, does it fit, given that he's integrating these two worlds, does that work? Yeah, mm-hmm, works, definitely works. Um, uh because of the the folk of the Valar, you know, the the large group of Maya who don't generally make it into the story. Very few Maya make make it into the stories in the Silmarillion, but we know there are bunches and bunches of them, right? Um, so it seems very likely that one of the things now that's happening as that integration has occurred is uh, we're gonna we're gonna sort of show. Meanwhile, what were Aule's folk up to in Middle Earth, right? Well, here's one, right? Here you go. Um, yeah, yeah. Yana says, is, uh, is Tom Bombadil in this category, right? Is, is Tom Bombadil the spirit that dwells in the old forest? Possibly. In which case, would Tom Bombadil be less alien to Legolas? Because he's of the woodland folk, right? If, Tom, if, if Legolas sat down with Tom Bombadil, would they, maybe they'd get on like a house on fire. Who knows? I don't know. Um, I'm not 100% convinced that he's like a woodland spirit in that way. But, you know... In the ballpark, I would say, probably. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll table that question for now. <laughs> but all right, let's keep going. Um, I'm already, I'm already late. Darn, I had, I, I had like 12 slides tonight. I was, I was so hopeful getting through them all. Oh, this is a quick one. I just really loved this passage. Um, 
You'll remember that in the fight over what to do when they're snowed in on Karathras, in the previous and only previous version of the Ringo South, um, Gandalf was really tetchy with Boromir, right? Um, It was with Boromir that he was fighting, and he fought with Boromir several times, and he seems to be genuinely annoyed by Boromir on a fairly regular basis. Um, uh, That passage gets transformed a bit here. Um, It is a pity, said Legolas, that Gandalf cannot go before us with a bright flame and melt us a path. It is a pity that elves cannot fly over mountains and fetch the sun to save them, answered Gandalf. Even, Even I need something to work on. I cannot burn snow, but I could turn Legolas into a flaming torch, if that would serve. He would burn bright while he lasted. <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> Spare me, cried Legolas. I fear that a dragon is concealed in the shape of our wizard. Yet a tame dragon would be useful in this hour. It will be a wild dragon if you say any more, <laughs> said Gandalf. Um, this is, uh, this is great. Right, right. Nancy, I agree. Uh, Cranky Gandalf is really funny. I think that Cranky Gandalf is a hoot. Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe it's, you know, one might say that like threatening to immolate Legolas is maybe a little over the top as far as witty banter is concerned. Um, but, uh, but I don't know, you know, I mean, I think it's, um, uh, I think it, I think it kind of works. Um, uh, and yes, John, I totally agree. John Caldwell says, Legolas in this passage feels more like the Rivendell elves of The Hobbit, retaining that jovial nature that is starting to fall away from the other elven characters in The Lord of the Rings. Yes, I agree. Um, uh, John uh, Legolas saying, um, I fear that a dragon is concealed in the shape of our wizard, yet a tame dragon would be useful at this hour. There is something similar in that to the two, like, uh, you know, and your snores would waken a stone goblin, yet we thank you, right? Um, no, a stone dragon, right? Uh, it was a drunken goblin that, uh, you know, your lullaby would waken a drunken goblin, Bilbo said to them first uh, in, the, in, the, in the last chapter uh, of The Hobbit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that, that kind of banter uh, is uh, definitely. So, um, yeah, Stephen, I agree. You, you can tell how much uh, Gandalf really likes Legolas by how much he's threatening to harm him. Yeah, um, this, this, that, this kind of banter. I mean, we've noticed already that in the early drafts, there's always more of this kind of banter. Um, in almost every case, this banter gets toned down. The more he revises these passages, the less of it stays. Um, uh, Tolkien's first impulse seems always to be to include more of this kind of, uh, of this kind of back and forth. Um, and it's going to go down over time. So we're going to lose him threatening to immolate, uh, Legolas. But I agree as sort of, um, startling as it might says this exchange might sound at first Christopher Tolkien is right to say that Gandalf seems less legitimately he was he was ticked off at Boromir uh the last time that this conversation happened so the fact that he's only joking about setting Legolas on fire now um that's totally that's totally an improvement uh okay um Okay, now we'll do this one too. Uh, then I'm then I'm gonna have to stop. Um, he says, "Okay, um, they're debating going into Moria. It is a name of ill omen," said Boromir. Nor do I see the need to go there. If we cannot cross the mountains, let us take the road to my land that I followed on my way hither, through Rohan and the country of seven streams. Or we could go on far into the south and come at length round the Black Mountains and, crossing the rivers Eisen and Silverlode, enter on from the regions nigh the sea. 
things have changed since you came north, Boromir, said Gandalf. Did you not hear what I told of Saruman? We must not come near Isengard or the Gap of Rohan. As for the even longer road, we cannot afford the time. Okay. Uh, and then Christopher adds, The remainder of Gandalf's reply is very much as in the Fellowship of the Ring, except that he tells Boromir that you are free to leave us and return to Minas Tirith by any road you choose. I love that writer. Again, so we see Gandalf is still not, like, he's still kind of impatient with Boromir. Um, uh, which is, the, I, I kind of love that crack. He's not, and I don't think he's joking, right? Uh, you, you, Boromir, you can get off this train anytime you want to, right? And you'll hear no objection from me. Um, but um, exactly, see, Stephen Gandalf doesn't actually threaten violence to him, so you can tell that he doesn't really like him all that much. Um, okay, but um, uh, the two comments I want to make here. First of all, notice how much more clearly the southern geography is coming into focus. The what the world looks like down to the south of the Hobbit map map has been very vague for a long time. That's been starting to resolve itself. We've had the clearer definition of the great river coming down through Gondor, Osgiliath, Minas Tirith, and Minas Minas uh, 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 Minas Tirith, Minas Tirith and Minas Anor. Uh, you know, Minas Anor and Minas Ithil, right? Which becomes Minas Tirith and Minas Morgul. Um, and we've got the Black Mountains, which are going to eventually become the White Mountains, but we've got the Black Mountains down there. Um, and we've got Rohan in between, and we've got the Gap of Rohan between the Misty Mountains and the Black Mountains, which will later be the White Mountains. Um, so it is, I agree, Marianne, it is getting larger, and it's coming, you know, with the we've had that string of beads, right? That string of adventures, the path, the projected path of the, of the, of the fellowship, the world around it is now starting to fill in. Now, of course, we get the we get the the coastal regions right down to the south of the Black Mountains, and the idea that the Kingdom of Ond extends down to the sea, and there's this sort of large but kind of vague expanse of land down south of Minas Tirith, south of the Black <clears throat> of the Black Mountains. Um, so, okay, that's all kind of interesting. You may remember in his commentary that Christopher Tolkien is all upset about the Seven Streams. Um, you know, he's like, "This is a contradiction. I can't make any sense out of this." Christopher, of course, as we all know, gets really excited about the map stuff because the maps were his deal, right? Um, and so he always talks in a lot of detail about the geographic implications of certain passages uh, in the text, which is often really, really fascinating and stuff that I wouldn't probably have focused on as much myself. Um, here, it kind of seems... I'm I'm inclined to say that I, I feel like Christopher Tolkien thinking map first as he always very understandably does. I think he's, it seems to me that he's kind of making heavy weather of something that isn't necessarily all that complicated um, in that his problem, Christopher's problem, is that Boromir says we can go through the Gap of Rohan, across Rohan, through the country of Seven Streams, and thus to Minas Tirith. Right? Whereas Christopher Tolkien says, clearly, the land of seven streams is south of Minas Tirith. So, to say that it would go that way, Gap of Rohan, Rohan, seven streams, Minas Tirith, doesn't make any sense. That's Christopher's argument, or Christopher's objection. Um, In my mind, that only doesn't make sense if we accept the fact that Tolkien really has a clear geographical view, but 
honestly, I'm not sure that I agree with... I think that the geography is really clear in Christopher's mind, and I'm not sure that he's not projecting that a little bit onto his father. Um, It does not seem at all to me that the geography of the Southern world is clear. And even though he has suggested in another place, as Christopher points to, that the seven streams are south of Minas Tirith, that seems to me a perfectly understandable kind of dithering. He doesn't know for sure where he wants to put it exactly. And he's not worked out. Goodness knows the geography of Rohan and the relative positions of Rohan, Fangorn, Great River, Lothlorien, like that's totally unclear still. Um, those are still all just things that are vaguely in the south. So who maybe maybe he's toying with the idea of the seven streams being the area north of Minas Tirith and on the way to uh, you know on, on the way to Rohan or like the the eastern part of Rohaners. I don't know, right? It's quite possible given how vague the geography is to this point. Um, so uh, so like I say, I, I don't I don't worry about this nearly so much. Um, uh, Exactly, Evan. It could very well be um, where Anorian in the Druidon Forest ends up. Yeah, exactly. That's the region that I'm thinking of. Um, maybe, you know, even if... And, and it's not even like he has anything as clear as that, right? The, 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 the delineation of the black... Again, despite Tolkien's own talk in his letters about, like, map first, story second, right? We know, we can see, he was not map first and story second. He is story, clearly story first and map second. Maybe he wanted to be map first and story second. Maybe he liked that. Uh, maybe that was, like, his ideal, but it's not the reality. Um, uh, and yeah, Kate, there's no Dunland yet. There's no hint of Dunland yet. Um, so yeah, it's it's still pretty vague. So, uh, f- you know, where Christopher Tolkien is looking at this passage and saying, this seems a contradiction and I can't explain it. I'm looking at this passage and saying, dang, this is still kind of vague and possibly indecisive, but, you know, still a major step forward compared to what we've seen in uh, in other versions of the Southern Geography. So pretty cool. All right. So, uh, I mean... Yeah, I'll save the next one. The 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 last the, I have three more slides and all three of the last slides are about Moria and uh sort of the conceptions of Moria as he begins to sort of flesh out this idea of Moria as the ancestral dwarvish home and and what it looks like and the implications of it. That's a fine place to stop. We'll do those next time because we're we'll still be in Moria for next week looking at the bridge of Khazad-dûm. So uh so we'll do those next time. So that's that's good enough. That's good enough. Good, good progress, people. Good work tonight. Okay, very good. Thanks, everybody. I appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for sticking with me, and um, and we will uh, um, uh, we'll 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 continue moving forward uh, next time. Thank you very much for uh, joining me, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.